Follow the bouncing ball, John. <laughs> I told John, just push the red button. And, and that's all you got to do. He's like, what if I can't find the red button? I said, follow the bouncing ball. Uh, we're finishing up the life of David, and we're in David's final chapter. And uh, I shared this with first services. That if, you read the, if you read David's life from the book of Samuel, I mean, it ends really, really bad. You know, and you, so I'm like, man, where's the hope in this, you know? Because if you're reading it from First Sam, or Second Samuel, but then when you read it from Chronicles, it actually comes across very hopeful. And so if you're looking for where we're coming from this morning, we're coming from Second Samuel chapter 24 forward, and we're coming from First uh, Chronicles chapter 21 forward. And so here's David in the final chapter of his life, and his life is in a mess. So some of you, you need to be encouraged this morning because your life couldn't be any worse than the way it is with David right here. Uh, David has failed with his family, he's failed in his job, and he's failing in his future. And so there's some serious issues going on with David, and how did he end up in this place? That's the question. David ended up where he was because he lived a life of self-indulgence. He went into this period of time where he just became very indulgent with himself. And a lot of people, you know, what we are as Christians is our character is tested. So the Lord tests our character, and he doesn't test your character as kind of like pass-fail. He tests your character because he wants to give you more. And so our character is put to the test just so that the Lord will test the constructs of our character in order to see if he can put more on our life. And we are tested with lack, and we are tested with abundance. And David had passed the test. He had passed the examination when it came to lack in his life. He lacked a lot. He passed. David passed the, the whole, I don't have anything, I'm going to serve Jesus thing. He passed that with flying colors. But he didn't pass the test of indulgence, or excuse me, prosperity or abundance. And he had a lot at this point in his life. David is on the top of the, he's at the top of his game. He's got all the money that he needs. He's, he's got peace on his borders. He's got triumph over his enemies. And what ended up happening is he kind of leaned into that, and he leaned away from his faith, he leaned away from, from all of the things that had got him where he was. Everything that had got him there, David moved away from it. And so what ended up happening is he worked when he felt like it, kind of sleeping during the day, got up, uh, you know, walking on the porch in the middle of the evening, or when it got evening, he starts chasing women, right? I like her, I want her, I like her, I want her. That, that's not going to cause any problems, of course not, yes. And so then he kills people. He ignores the needs and the responsibility of his family. This is probably the biggest problem that he had, is he began to ignore the things that were going on within his family. And he had some issues with his sons that he didn't address. He had some issues with his daughter, one of his daughters in particular, Tamar. He didn't address that issue. And he had some issues with some extended family members. Joab was his cousin, was, was David's cousin, and, David, and Joab would kind of go off the map a little bit and do his own thing, and David never addressed the issues even with Joab. He had some other people around him. He had Ahithophel, some of his counselors and some of his friends. People had built up. There wasn't, it wasn't a lot of openness in the relationship. There wasn't a lot of dialogue. And because David didn't create, it was, everything was kind of, you know, just silent. Uh, you know, the, the issues were there, but nobody talked about them. Anybody know what I'm talking about? There's issues, there's tension in the room, but nobody wants to talk about it. And that was kind of like how David operated. He operated from that standpoint. And it, what it ended up doing is it ended up working against him. And so David fails. He fails miserably. And it ends up costing him. Amnon is murdered by Absalom. Absalom now rebels against his other son, rebels against his father, brings an army against his father. Um, and so in this case, Absalom ends up getting killed in battle by Joab. Even though David had told Joab, don't kill him, right? 
capture him, bring him back to me, don't kill him. Joab, as soon as Joab had the opportunity, Joab killed him. And since so David never, and he didn't even address Joab and what he did, and so there were some other issues that were going on. And so David's in this moment in time, and he's just, he's really lost everything. I mean, everything around him is a train wreck. He's got all the success he wants, but his family is a train wreck. And he's living, he begins to live a life of self-pity, which is never the point. God never brought him into self-pity. From the time he fell with Bathsheba, from the time he kind of went there with Bathsheba, and he was corrected by the prophet, David had been spending, and he will spend the next several years of his life in self-pity. He got stuck in the moment. He got stuck in a failure that he had many, many years ago. And it wasn't the Lord putting anything on him. The Lord had already relieved that. You know, he even tells us in the Psalms that the Lord had lifted that off of him. When he repented, God lifted it off of him. But David began and continued to live a life of self-pity. Self, you know, I, I can't get past what I did. You know, and there's an actually a really beautiful verse. One of my, again, I every, say, Kevin, every verse you quote's your favorite. Yeah, it's true. So, <laughs> Bible says, if our heart condemns us, he is greater than our heart and he knows all things. David had no right to be self-condemning upon himself when God had forgiven him. You know, and so David continued to condemn himself and lived in this thing. And he gets very weak and he gets very insecure and he decides he's going to take a census. And people go, well, what's the big deal with taking a census? I don't understand. So if you read this story and you read what David did, it seems like an insignificant thing. And then you read the result of what David did. You're like, what? Why did that result in that? Well, the reason is, is David at this moment in time, he's weak and insecure. He'd really pushed away from his source of strength. The Lord was his strength in his song. The Lord was his shield and his buckler. He wrote songs like that. And David had pushed away from the source of his strength, and he's starting to measure his strength by what he has. And so he begins to count, count the, not, he didn't count the people, he counted the army. He wanted to know specifically how big is my army. How powerful am I? How mighty am I? And what it's really showing us is that he's taking refuge in that. And so the Lord had an issue with that. A census in Israel was allowed, but they weren't to count the fighting men. God allowed them to take a census, but they had to number all of the people. And every person that was numbered in the census had to give money. You had to pay a certain amount of silver, a redemption price, in order to be named among the Lord's people. People go, well, why would God charge to be, be taken a census? Because it costs something to be numbered, among, to be named among God's people. It costs something. And it wasn't just one shekel for the whole household. Everybody had to pay the prescribed amount. So what, how many kids you had, you had, to give, you had to give on their behalf. You know, there's no, you know, one covers all. Everyone had to do it. And what it's teaching us is it's teaching us that there's a price. And there's a cost to be named among the Lord's people. And there was a price that's paid for us to be named among the Lord's people. Jesus paid a price. He paid a redemption's price. He paid, he paid for his life. And what often ends up happening is Christians, we treat this stuff as like trifles. You know, like Jesus, my big, my buddy upstairs. Or we, you know, and, one of, and I shared with first service, one of the rebukes in the book of Hebrews is when we treat the blood of Christ as a common thing. We treat it as common. Now that's not to say we worship the blood of Jesus. But we acknowledge the blood of Jesus for what it is. The blood of Jesus is what brings us into our identity. The blood of Jesus is what brings us into restoration and what commits us back into the family of God. But we oftentimes, we treat this in like these very trifle and trivial ways. And that's not what God wants for us. And so, you know, they were allowed to have a census, but everybody had to pay the prescribed price. And it had to be with silver. And silver is a prophetic symbol of, of redemption or righteousness. So a righteous price had to be paid in order for people to be counted among the Lord's people. And that's the picture that we see here. David didn't do it that way. 
He decided he was going to go a different way. So he takes the census, bad move, okay? bad move. And everything kind of falls apart again. His strength, David's strength was in his intimacy with the Lord. That's where he got his strength from. His strength wasn't from the size of his army. The size of his army was a result of, God, of David's strength. And if you know anything about the Bible, God can deliver, he delivered an army into the hands of Israel with Jonathan and his armor bearer. You know, he delivered, he delivered uh, um, uh, through Gideon, he delivered an entire uh, people through Gideon and 350 people, and they were outnumbered infinitely. So there was a huge number of people that they were outnumbered. So God is, the Lord doesn't need this massive army. You know, he doesn't need all of these resources. Our strength is in him. Our strength is in his name. Our strength is in, our, is in his presence. Does anybody agree? One person. That's it. That's all I need. I just need one. <laughs> his strength was in intimacy with the Lord. Here's the issue with David. David had ignored that for a long time. He moved away from it. David sinned. And he's beating himself up. And so he pushes away from his intimacy with the Lord. He pushed away from it. He pushed away from his identity. And he's over here living in this life of self-pity. He makes a census, and what the census did, if you were here last week, we're talking about this. In the Old Testament, there's the law of sin and death. This is where Romans 8 tells us that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets us free from the law of sin and death, right? So the law of sin and death in the Old Testament, when you sin, you invoke the law of sin and death. Sin had to be accounted for. Sin had to be paid for. There was, there was repentance didn't even, it, it had, something had to be extracted. The New Testament, we're given something, we're given the law of the life in Christ Jesus. And that law of life in Christ Jesus is, everybody say it with me, is activated through repentance. Right? So the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets us free from the law of sin and death. The consequences of the law of sin and death. That's not just spiritually at salvation. That is something that is an operative process within our lives. Repentance is a lifestyle for the Christian. And we, you know, we act like repentance is like, oh, I got to, you know, just, you know, you got to cry, you got to weep, oh, God, forgive me, and you got to beat yourself up and take a bat and hit yourself. That, that's, you got to understand that's not what repentance is. Repentance is giving back to the Lord. It's teshuva, return to me. It's metanoia, change the way that you see. And so whether you're crying or whether you're not, people can give their life to Christ, and they don't have to be, you know, ugly crying up here. All they got to do is give their heart. That's all it is. It's a simple exchange. And so repentance, what repentance does to the, to, in, in, in the Old Testament is it didn't matter. The law of sin and death had to be fulfilled. It had to run its course, and then it, was, then it would stop. In the New Testament, through repentance, we lift off of us the penalties of sin and death. So, for instance, when you become born again, this is, what, this is literally the transaction that happens when you're born again. You give your life to Christ. You, salvation is not words. It's not the words that we say. We, I could stand up here and lead you mumble, 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 give your heart to Jesus or surrender your life to Christ. And if you make that exchange, you're safe. It's not the words that I say. It's the exchange that happens. We have some of the most pastors and preachers that do the most eloquent salvation prayers you've ever heard. You know what I mean? Even if you're a Christian, you feel like that warm tear coming down your eye because that's such a beautiful prayer. But if the prayer does not lead to the exchange, the person is not converted. You have to return your heart to Jesus. So this is what salvation looks like. Repentance, and here it comes. It'll bring the law of life of Christ Jesus, freeing you from the law of sin and death. So, okay, you're outside of Christ. You're under the law of sin and death. You're under guilt, shame, condemnation, eternally lost, hopeless and helpless. You can't do anything about it. 
You give your life to Jesus. You come and you surrender your heart. Repentance, teshuva, return, right? Jesus released to you the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, and now all of a sudden you feel alive. That, that's one of the most tangible ways that a believer can experience what I'm talking about. And so what happens is, is that, that you're now translated from judgment to righteousness, from darkness to light, and you go, well, I don't feel like it. it doesn't have anything to do with your feeling. It has to do with what he's giving you. You receive Christ, and you're translated through repentance, right? And so now that I've received, I give my life to Jesus. He gives me his life, so that's teshuva. And then metanoia, I begin to live my life differently. I begin to see my life differently. I begin to see the world differently. Does that make sense to you? And so what happens, though, with every believer, there are Christians that are born again, but there are areas of their life that are unrepentant. There are areas of their life that they claim as their own and have never surrendered to Jesus. You can be born again, going to heaven, and still have lordship over these areas of your life. Your finances, your relationships, you know, the way that you think, your sexuality, that's a big one in our culture. I'm my own, I can define my own sexuality. Who says who? Says who? Okay, well maybe in the culture and in the world, but we start getting into this stuff in the church. You're off, man. You're off by a mile. Right? You, that's, not, that's not it. So what happens is, is like you, as long as you claim ownership over that area of your life, until you repent it and give it back to the Lord, the, the blessing is not there. It just isn't. It doesn't mean he won't provide for you. The Bible says he sends the rain on the just and the, inju- on the unjust. He's going to provide for you. So as so long as you go, this is my money, I worked for it, I'm going to use it the way I want, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine, I'm not doing it. When you take it that and you go, Lord, I'm no longer going to claim my money as my own, I'm not only going to claim money as my own, I'm not going to claim that mindset, I repent, I give that back to you, I give my attitude back to you, and I give that to you, and I receive a new way of thinking, that's repentance. I give that to you, and I take it back. I'm no longer going to do relationships my way. I'm no longer going to interact with the opposite sex the way that I want to. I'm going to understand the way you want me to, so I'm going to surrender that to you, and I'm going to go a a different way. That's repentance. And what happens through repentance is all of a sudden blessing comes over that. Blessing begins to come over your finances when you operate it the way the Lord has told you. You say, I don't believe that. Well, you believe a lie. You know, and there's, there's lies that Christians believe that they have to repent even of the lie because the lie becomes a stronghold. This is hard for us, too, because we really, you know, we're lied to. We believe so many lies that we can't even see the lies that we believe. And the believer says, I don't believe God loves me. I don't believe, I don't, or I don't believe God is good. We wouldn't outright come and say that. We would say that with our, with our lives don't reflect that. Our lives don't reflect the fact that we believe that God is our provider. If you truly believe God is your provider, you will operate with him in the way that he prescribes. If you do not, then you believe a lie. You truly, you say it with your mouth, but you're, you're not committed to that as a truth. You're bound with a lie. People say things will never change. Who told you that? You believe a lie. You say Jesus doesn't heal today. Who told you that? You believe a lie. You, you, we're bound with lies. And we not only have to recognize the lies, we have to repent of those lies. You say, why would I have to repent of a lie? Because you've made a partnership with it. You've made an agreement with it. Agreements have to be broken. Lord, forgive me for ever partnering with a lie that says you're not good. Lord, forgive me for ever partnering with a lie that says I'm not worthy of your goodness. You know, we have to repent for that. We have to give it back, and then life comes to us. This is a hugely misunderstood principle within the Scripture. 
I mean, we think that, we think that repentance is like we're, we're all running around like the judgment police looking for sin in each other's lives so that we can tell each other how to repent. How to repent. You know, oh, you need to repent. You know, that's not the goal. The idea of repentance, it's not weeping and crying and all of this stuff before the altar. If you do that, great. Hey, that's wonderful. But get up and go a different way. That's it. Get up and go. We, we don't think people repent unless they're snot, snot crying on the front of the stage. I mean, that's, that's literally how we portray it. Well, I don't think she really repented of that. You know, I didn't, I didn't see the tears, you know. It's like, that's not, the, that's not the biblical model of repentance. Repentance is giving it back to the Lord and taking something back from Him and going forward in a different way or going in a different direction. That's repentance, and it's hugely misunderstood, and it's not practiced within the church and not practiced in the lives of the believer, and we stay in bondage to things that we shouldn't stay in bondage to because we lack the understanding of repentance. It's just, a, it's just part of our faith. It's a lifestyle. I repent all the time. I, you know what I repent of? I repent of my stupidity. Lord, forgive me for being so dumb. Forgive me for being so dull. Forgive me for being so this or whatever it may be. Anything in my life, you have to develop a sensitivity. What we think is that we think it's connected to guilt and shame. It's not connected to guilt and shame. You know? And if you really want to get down on it, we talk about this here. If you want to know what the problem is, just ask the Holy Spirit. He's going to tell you. <laughs> you may not like the answer, but he's going to tell you. He, the, the facts are, Jesus will leave you the way that you are. It, if it does not matter to you, it does not matter to him. People don't like to hear that. They think, oh, that's not true. That's not true. Jesus is not going to work any harder than you. And people go, oh, well, Jesus has already done all the work. Yeah, then why are so many people in bondage? He's done the work for salvation. He's done the work to get you in the door. What you do once you're in the door, that's up to you. That's what defined in partnership with him. That's what it is. You agree and partner with him, but you're not going to go any further than you're willing. He's not going to pick you up and carry you. I mean, you hear me tell the story about the guy who once wrote, God's told me I'm going to write five books. I'm going to write five books. Well, how's it going, bro? You got a title? You got a chapter? You know? Which Jesus is going to come down and drop the manuscript in your hand? Is that what he's going to do? You know? I'm believing God for a godly marriage. Well, how's that going? Are you working on you? Are you working on yourself? Are you partnering with your, are you partnering to get out of your junk and help and be, become whole in this relationship? Or are you just waiting for God to come down and do a shazam on you because it's not going to work? You understand what I'm saying? It's like, so Jesus has done the work to get us across the threshold, but everything that we inherit from the kingdom has to do with partnership. If you don't partner, it's like people go, well, salvation's a free gift. That's free, but you still have to do something. It's not works-based, Kevin. Uh, duh, I understand that, but I still have to do something. Jesus died for the whole world, but if I don't appropriate that, it means nothing to me. God has, a, God has a glorious future. God has plans and purposes and processes for all of us. But if we do not begin to appropriate them into our lives, it doesn't happen. It just doesn't. I mean, think of Deuteronomy 8.18, right? Let's just take dispensational theology out of this. You know, we're like, well, you can't say that, Kevin, because, you know, God said that to the Hebrew children, and that can't be applied to the church. Says who? Who told you that? Seriously, who told you that? There are theologians that teach that nonsense, that tell that they teach dispensational teaching. The blessings are for today. All of the promises are yes and amen. How many? All of them. Say, I don't believe that. That's fine. You know, when people tell me that, I tell them, stay behind with the asses. 
you stay in the valley with all the other asses. That's what Abraham told the servants because we're going to the mountain to worship. I'm, I'm not even arguing. I'm not even debating this anymore. I'm not going to try to convince somebody that the promises are, are for today. They are. How do you know? Because we can experience them in reality. You can experience them. So if you take Deuteronomy 8.18, it says, The Lord your God's given you the power to get well, that you may establish His covenant in the land. Every single person has the God-given anointing to obtain wealth. What's wealth look like? Wealth is relative to your vision. God will equip you in relativeness to your vision. The provision is directly attached to the vision. That's it. And that vision is in relationship to his kingdom. So you say, I want a million dollars. Well, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do? No, seriously, what are you going to do with it? Have you ever thought that through? If God dropped a million bucks in your lap right now, you, would, you don't even have a vision, a plan, or a purpose to it. I guarantee you, when you start implementing your life to the vision of the kingdom, the things that you're seeking will come to you. Say, I want a million dollars. I'll give 10%. Well, you're not giving 10% now. Why would he give you a million dollars? If you're not faithful with little, how can you be faithful with much? You won't be. You'll be worse. <laughs> I see it all the time. Guys tithe and their lives increase and they stop giving. I can't tell you the number of people I've seen that happen with. Guys giving, he's making 500 bucks a week. Oh, he's happy to give 50. He starts making 3,500 a week. I literally know a guy that his business, I tell you guys this story, his business went from like probably 30 or $40,000 a year. He, was, he sat me down and he said, I'm believing God for a million dollar a year business. He said, I want a million dollars in contracts. That's what he told me. I said, start to give. I said, intention, I said, give not only from your personal, but so from that business. And believe God for that. In about 14 months, maybe 15 months, he had $750,000 in contracts. You say, it wasn't a million. Yeah? Well, how about from 40 to 750,000? That's pretty good. You know what I mean? That's pretty good. He, he, he got a couple of national accounts and it went right up. And probably within three or four months after that, because I lost touch with him because we had a conversation. <laughs> he sat me down and he told me the Lord's told me not to give anymore. So he told me. So at $40,000, Jesus is telling you to give. At $750,000, he's telling you not to? Okay. Got it. This is, I'm serious. This is how people think. And I told him, I said, you're crazy. That's, that's not, that's not, you, you can do what you want. So as soon as you know, you're like, oh, I believe in God for $2,500 a week. Bless God. May it come to you. But are you going to give $250 a week? Are you going to give $250 and say, oh, yes, I would? Really? Because you can't give $50 off the $500 right now. So how are you going to give two? Because the higher the number gets, the bigger the number you have to give. And the bigger the number you have to give, it becomes a the offering is always the same. It's painful. And usually when you get comfortable with a level of giving, God calls you into a level of offering. He calls you to a higher level. Always. If you want it, it's there for you. And not only this, so you begin to tithe and you begin to sow seed and you're like, and then people, here's what people do. I gave my, give them my 10% every week and then they sit down and cross their legs and wait for Jesus to come with the Reader's Digest check. What if it came to you with a concept? What if he came to you with an idea? What if he came to you with a partnership? What if he came to you with a way forward? Oh no, I wouldn't like that because that would mean I'd have to work. Yeah, it would mean uh, you'd have to work. You'd actually have to do something. So if you're believing God for it, Believe God for it. Do what he asks, but also be willing to invoke and enact the ideas, concepts that he gives to you. He will give you an ability to obtain wealth. What you do with that ability is up to you. It's up to you. 
The guy that I'm talking about, he had a very clear plan. He had, he had already set up a system in his life to where he could go to a million dollars. A lot of people don't even have that system set up in their life that they could go to a million dollars. Their business isn't, isn't set in a way that it's scalable to that level. Their lives are not set in that way that it's scalable to that level. I was just watching a business guy, I was telling Sherry about this. This guy, I watch, these I watch a lot of stuff. I, I always consuming content. I'm always trying to always be in learning mode. Guy sitting down, he's at a seminar, guy starts telling him, this is what I want, I want to live this lifestyle, I want to do these things. And so the guy starts asking him some questions and the, it turns out the guy, you know, basically didn't want to do anything that this guy was saying. And he looked at him and he said, you want to live a 1% lifestyle, but you're not willing to do 1% things. You want to live a 1% lifestyle, but you're not willing to do 1% things. You want a 1% marriage, but you're not willing to do 1% things. You want 1% children, but you're not willing to do 1% things. You want a 1% faith, but you're not willing to do 1% things. You want a faith that's like that? Do 1% things. You want to prophesy like some of these guys do? And there are guys, there's a prophetic movement in the church that's always been there. It's just we've kind of woken up to it, like, duh, I guess it's been here all along. But there are guys who develop themselves to high levels. And we all sit there and we want to worship them. Oh, Oh, this is a church's tendency, is to worship our leaders. If you want what that guy has, do the things that that guy does. Do that. I watched the guy who was in a conference, man, this guy blew my mind, and, and, and uh, Sharon and I talk about this sometimes. Guy walks into the room, he's gonna give a prophetic word. I'm talking crystal. Dude walks up to the thing, grabs a microphone, walks up, starts giving a prophetic word. He's like, somebody's in here, her name is this, this is her background, this is where she comes from, this is the city, I'm seeing Pennsylvania in a specific city. I mean, I'm talking to the letter. Woman walks up, it's exactly her. Exactly her. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, it was like mind-blowing. And you go, oh, he's a 1% prophet. No, he's a prophet who does 1% things. He spends hours in meditation, in prayer. He gets into the spirit, he locks and loads. He doesn't start dictating to the Lord what he wants, he begins to hear. And he said he would go and he would just spend time and he'd be hearing the Lord, what do you want to do? Who do you want to call out? And the Lord would start saying things to him and he began to create a map off of the things that God would take three hours before the service and he'd actually map it in the spirit and then he could come forward in the spirit and say it. Completely blind. He doesn't know if that person's there. He doesn't know if Mary Jane from Timbuktu, Pennsylvania is here, whose grandmother's name was Emma, and whose grandmother's name was Emma, suffered with a hereditary disease from the time she was a child, and that Mary Jane from Timbuktu, Pennsylvania has the same hereditary disease in the room, and she's struggling with it right now. How does he know that? Well, it's just a word, it's just a divine encounter. That's Jesus. No, he's doing 1% things. He's developing himself in a 1% way. Just be real. It's true. I'm being told to smile, so I'll smile. Sherry's like, smile, Kevin. No, we, we, we have a disconnect. We have a disconnect. You want a 1% business, but you don't want to do 1% things. What am I missing? That's the point. It's partnership with the Holy Spirit. Do what God asks you to do. And listen, if you don't want it, if you want it, and you're not willing to do it, what the scripture tells us is to adjust our expectations. We just need to adjust our expectations. Well, I want a 1% life, but I'm not willing to do 1% things. I want a 1% faith, I'm not willing to do 1% things. Okay, well then maybe you should probably go to like a 50% life and do the 50% things. You know, you shouldn't want, you know, you should want the high things, but you need to partner that with 1% behavior. <laughs> it's true. 
So the census brought the law of sin and death. Next slide. The Lord commands David to build an altar on a threshing floor. So here's the story. David has left his faith. David hasn't walked in his faith in some time. David has departed from, uh, from, from everything that he knew and everything that kind of got him there. And so the Lord tells him there's a, he, he brings a curse on the land because he, he, he takes a census. God never So he now enacted something that had to run its course. And so David wants it to stop. And so he asks the Lord, what do I do? Okay? And the Lord tells him to go and build an altar on a threshing floor. This is very important because he didn't say go build an altar in the pasture, go build an altar on the hill, go to the center of where the temple is and, put, and, 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 burn on, and do, do this on that altar. He told him to specifically go to a threshing floor and build an altar there. Why? Why? Because David had forgotten who he was. David was not living according to the identity that the Lord had given him. And so he takes him to the threshing floor where things are separated where the wheat is separated from the chaff. And he brings David to a, to a place where he can remember, David, you're not common. David, you're separated. David, this is not, this is, you see, this is, you, this is not who you are. And David has an epiphany while he's there. So he remembers, you know, sometimes we have to remember who we are. We have to go to a threshing floor. We have to remember who we are, that we're not common. And God tells him to put an altar at the threshing floor. So what is the altar? The altar is worship. So he put him, brings him to this place of separation. He says, look, you're not like everybody else. You want this stuff to stop in your life? Stop seeing yourself as everybody else. You want this nonsense to stop coming into your life? Stop living a life like everybody else. Because that's not who you are. You need to come to this place and realize I'm separated. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you're not part of this. We're in the world, but we're not of it. We're, we're a culture that's separated. We're sons and daughters. We're a culture that, um, that worships at an altar. Of, we, we're not an altar being like this act of worship where all of our life is ascribed to him, this value, this worth that's given to him. So he brings him to this altar and he, for David to understand that everything in your life comes from me. In, you, in, you, in me you live, in me you move, in me you have your being. David, come back to your senses. Come back to yourself. Come back to the... And understand, begin to offer to me the value of your life. Begin to offer me to me even the brokenness and the hurt and the pain of your life. Offer that to me. David purchases the land. He, he said, look, I want to buy the land. The guy that wants to give it to him. He said, no, let me give it to him. And David said, you will charge me full price. He said, the Lord has commanded this and I will make no offering to God that costs me nothing. He said, I won't take one discount at all. Whatever the maximum price is on this land, that's what I'm paying. David understood. This is a moment of clarity. Because if you can realize what happened to him up until this point, he, from, from Bathsheba to this point, there's a huge gap. David's on a downhill slide. And he's in the pits. <laughs> he's really down. He's depressed. And all this stuff's on him. And he couldn't get out of the moment of his failure and all of the tragedy that accompanied that failure. He's just lost in it. And God brings him to this place. And David has an awakening. He realizes something. And he begins to pivot. And what he pivots to is a new vision and a new purpose for his life. He's thinking his life's over. He's kind of on a downhill slide. From this point forward, the Bible tells us that David began to help Solomon arrange for the building of the temple. So here's David lost in despair and hopelessness and pity and misery. And oh, poor me, my life's over, my life's over. And now God brings him to the threshing floor, brings him back to the point of understanding of who he is, recapturing himself, and brings him back to this place where David understands that my value is in the Lord and that my life is to be ascribed to the Lord. And David begins to do that and everything changes. Everything changes.
crazy. And so what does he do? He has a renewed vision and he has a renewed purpose. He begins to prepare the temple. He begins to build a new future. There it is. You want to build a new future? You have to come back. If you've lost your identity, come back to it. Or come to an awakening of your true identity. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of the highest. It's who you are. And then realize that your life is not to be spent in selfish consumption. Because that's what he was doing. And that's what led him there. David was living a life of selfish consumption. And he, that's where every, everything... When he, David was living in a life of identity and a life of value, he went to the top. When David lived a life of self-consumption, it's all about me, I work when I want, if I see her, I like her, I take her, I want to kill him, I need this guy out of the way. Whenever he lived this life of just where it was all about him, everything went down. And you can see that he's still all about him because he's in self-pity. Self-pity is self-indulgence. When you're just being consumed with self-pity, you're just indulging yourself on your miseries and your pain and your suffering. Oh, woe is me, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. I get it. We've all seen trouble, haven't we? <laughs> We've all seen it. And there's something a little further in the notes. You have permission to mourn your loss, but you don't have permission to stay there. And a lot of people mourn their losses, but they stay there. You know? You've lost. That's great. I know. We all lose. We have permission to mourn it. It hurts. It's terrible. It's a loss. It's a failure. But what you don't have permission to do is stay there. And David stayed there for a long time. Do, do you realize... You're going to, if even going through this, when you come to a moment of awakening, you're going to look back and you're going to go, I wasted so many years on self-pity. Do you realize that? When you come out of something, you're going to look back and you go, I wasted so many years being afraid of what people thought of me. I wasted so many years nurturing and, and, and suffocating under the pain of what I did or what someone else did to me. And what you're going to realize is the Lord never put you there. He never put, David, David, the Lord didn't put David there. David put himself there. And the Lord let him stay there. And the Lord brings him to a place of understanding. He said, you want your failures to stop, David? Here's the point. And David got it. He understood it. And he received it. And he moved forward. And he begins to get a new vision. Losses are inevitable, but losses do not have to be final. This is important. Okay? So here's a big thing. Here's a big push on, okay? In America, we do participation trophies. Anybody? Anybody have kids, right? You get a ribbon if you're in eighth place. You can even get a trophy that you're in eighth place, right? My son and his basketball team, they, like, at the rec ball, they went undefeated. They win the championship trophy. And every kid that came in eighth place and never won a game, they got the exact same trophy. Right? Why is that wrong? Well, we don't want anybody to not feel accepted. It's wrong because you have a generation that's grown up under this, and you're, in life you are going to experience inevitable losses. And you're not going to get a participation trophy. And so we have people that experience inevitable losses, and they don't know how to map it because they think they should be getting something. Right? We have a generation that's been working on a job for two weeks, and they think they should get a promotion. Well, I've been here for two weeks. You know, when, when, when am I getting the office over there? You know, and, and why is that? Because they've been taught that everybody's equal. I get it in a church. I get, I get these guys come in and we've had more problems with 20-somethings than any, any other group. And they come in and they want to be your equal. Like, dude, I'm not, you know, and I just sit there. My wife's a little more vocal than I am. I just sit there and go, yeah, okay, that's cool. All right, anyway, moving on, next subject. I had a guy sit down with me and he goes, 28 years old, looks me right in the face and goes, and if you're watching, I remember, uh, he, he goes, he looks me right in the face and he goes, I believe the Lord has brought me here to teach you. Sits right in front of me, right? 
And I'm like, okay, that's great. Anyway, and I moved on to the next subject, right? I was like, whatever, dude. And my wife goes, hold, 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 hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. <laughs> Sherry goes, did you just say that you believe the Lord brought you here to teach Kevin? And he goes, yes, 100%, unabashed, whatever. I'm your equal. So it's like, it's like everybody come in with zero life experience and huge opinion, but no life experience, right? And so I had a pastor tell me, and I've been practicing this, is he says to you, he says, Kevin, whenever they say that to you, you look right at him and go, what has your life produced? What has your life produced that you think that you're qualified to speak to me on in such an equal way? What have you produced? Now, if you feel like you've, it's not like, oh, you're above. No, it's like, it's, you're presuming a position that you don't hold. And this is kind of like what ends up happening is like, we, we create this generation that thinks along these lines. You know, they come up with a good idea and they want a star. They want a badge. Or they sit in a business meeting and they give a good idea and the business doesn't adopt their meeting. They want to pout and go suck their thumb because nobody applauded them when they gave, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. And so we end up doing this, we end up creating these, these situations where there's, this is what goes on in our, in, our, in our lives, you know? It's participation trophies. It doesn't matter. So where was I? <laughs> he has a renewed vision. He begins to build a future. Losses are inevitable, but they do not have to be final. Kids need to learn losses, okay? All right, I played Little League Baseball. Baseball was my game, right? I used to play baseball. And um, so I remember distinctly playing Little League Baseball. Little League, we played for the championship, right? Woo, we're gonna play for the title, right? This is my, my town, right? My little small town. We lose three to one. We didn't get a trophy, okay? We not only didn't get a trophy, we had to line up on the first baseline and stand there and watch the other team get their trophies. It's true. So you're laughing, you know what I'm talking about. You know, and we not only didn't get a trophy, we had to stand there and stare at the team that just beat us get their trophy. And you know what it does? It puts the desire in your mouth that like, I, I'm not, you know, I'm gonna work harder next year. I, I'm not gonna be in this position. You know, it, 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 you know, nobody goes, oh, well, here's your second place trophy. Here's your third place trophy. They gave you one, right? So it, it, losses are inevitable, but they don't have to be final. We need to realize that you, just because you had a loss, you don't need to stay in that loss. We're going to lose jobs, we're going to lose businesses, we're going to lose clients, we're going to lose family members, God help us, finances, people, places, and things. Why do we lose things? You lose things because of poor choices, okay? You lose things because we have circumstances in our world that are broken. We live in a sinful world. Well, I just don't understand why it happened. The, the, the world's messed up. I mean, stuff falls out of the sky for no apparent reason. You know what I mean? And say, what did I do to deserve this? Probably nothing. There are things that you did that is a direct result of your action or your choice. Then there are things that happen to you for no reason at all. They just happen, right? And so that's, where does that play? That plays into our faith. God works all things out to the good of those who love him and are called according to your purpose. His purpose. Even if bad things happen to us, we have Jesus, you know? Good things, bad things can, good things can come from bad things. God will work it out for us. But things happen, these losses happen in our lives, circumstances, company goes broke, you lose your job, what did I do? You didn't do anything, you know? Unless you're the CEO or something, you know, maybe, maybe then, but you know, whatever, maybe you made a bad choice, but circumstances, sinful people, there's a lot of sinful people that bring losses into our lives. People lose marriages because of the choices of another sinful person. 
People can't reconcile relationships because one person wants to reconcile it and the other person doesn't. What can you do? There's nothing you can do in those, in those instances. Next slide. Except this. <laughs> well, I'll get back. I'll get to that. So what did David do? He gathered the resources. He gave instructions. He delegated detailed plans and authority. So David got a new vision. What did he say? He says, man, I, so I'm at, I'm at this conference. I was sharing this at the tail end of last service. And there's a guy, he's like in his 70s, and he's a South African evangelist. His name's Peter Rom, right? And I'm having breakfast. He comes over and sits down. He's like, man, I've been chomping at the bit to talk to you. And I'm like, well, come on, sit down. So him and his wife sit down, and we end up having breakfast and everything. And, um, and he's just telling me about his life, and he just feels like his life is free. He's like, I really want to do something for the Lord, but I just feel like my time's up. I'm like, well, who told you that, man? Who told you your time's up? Did Jesus tell you your time's up? Did Jesus? He's like, well, I'm 70. I'm like, well, who told you? Who told you that it's over at 70? Who, who said that? You know, so I started to minister to him. I ended up giving him a word, okay? So uh, I ended up giving him a word. And he looked at his life, not in the end, but in the future. And I began to tell him, I, I told him a bunch of stuff, but one of the things I told him is, uh, so beautiful. You guys want to hear the beautiful thing? That, yeah, okay, I got one. Okay, so I tell him, one of the things I tell him, I see all this stuff, but I said, I see you coming down a hill and you're coming up to this beautiful, it's like chateau, and there's this beautiful lake, big body of water, and I said, you're coming up, and I said, these people are waiting for refreshment, and I feel like you're coming to them, you're gonna bring them refreshment, and I said, and then I see you coming and your wife is sitting at a table. She's sitting at a breakfast table waiting for you, you know, by this big, beautiful lake. The guy gets up out of the chair, I mean, he starts, like, crying, and he just tells me, he's like, you don't know what that means to me. Because, you know, the prophetic word is God sees you, he knows you, he cares. That's part of it, right? And he says to me, when I was traveling, and I was traveling a lot, I was in Alaska, and I was in Alaska ministering, he's ministering to Eskimos. And he said, when I was there, he said, my wife sent me a card. And he said, the card was a picture of a little girl standing on a lake, looking out over this big, beautiful lake. And on the back of the card, it said, I'm waiting for you. <laughs> Blue, and I mean, she didn't think it was a big deal, but this dude's like sobbing. He's like crying. And I tell him, I said, you know, and I start telling him more, and I told him, I said, I, I, I go, look, this is how I do it. I, I'm like, I presume no instruction. I said, I'm merely going to tell you what I see and what I hear the Lord saying, and you do with it what he wants. I'm not instructing you in any way. And I told him, I see Poland. I said, I see Poland for you. I said, does Poland mean anything to you? And he said, uh, there's a pastor here from Poland. And I, I'm like, okay, but I, I told him a couple of things from Poland. And um, uh, the next morning, that guy was having breakfast with the pastor from Poland. He didn't wait. He didn't run around. Ooh, look, God told me to go to Poland. Woohoo, woohoo. He immediately enacted that word. And he sat with that guy at breakfast. I saw him. I just waved at him. I didn't do anything. And I, and I came around. And then when he, he grabbed me by the arm. In South Africa, they talk like this when they hold hands, right? Am I right on that? Because he was talking to me at the table. And he said, this is how we talk in South Africa. And he grabbed my hand, and he was sitting there talking to me. And he goes, I want you to know that the pastor from Poland invited me to Poland without me saying anything. He said he looked at me and said, I'd like you to come to Poland. And I'm like, off to Poland, bro. And so he was so fired up and he was so excited. He's, that guy's going to be in Poland by the end of the year. I guarantee it. Within a year, he'll be in Poland. He's already making plans. I mean, he's on and up. He's believing God. He wants to hear God. He's like, his life's over. The word of God comes to him, you know, just, just sharing with him, talking with him. Give it to him. Guy jumps up. He's going to be on a plane to Poland. You know? And I, I shared with him some stuff that I saw there. And I told him, I said, I would lean this way. I said, it's going to be outside of normal circles. And I would, I would lean this way. The guy comes from a really rough background. You know? 
he grew up in Johannesburg, and he said in one mile of hell, he said it was a really, he, so he grew up a really rough life. I said, I would go to Poland, and I would ask where the rough guys are. I said, I think that's your license to kill. Your license to kill is among these guys, because that's his story. I mean, he's a super refined guy, very eloquent speaker, but he tells you a story, it's like, whoa, you know, like crazy stuff. But David didn't see his life as being over, you understand? David's here, he is in his 60s, and he goes, wait a second, it's not over for me. I can still accomplish something great for the purposes of God. I can still accomplish something significant. He didn't just send himself out to pasture. He began to build the future. Oh, come on, that's for somebody. He didn't send himself out to pasture. He began to build the future. He assembled what was necessary for the future. He began to put it together, and he began to use the authority that God had. And the first thing he does is he gets the people together, and he calls for stewardship. He says, all y'all need to give. You not only give to the provision, which is the care of the house, but you need to give vision of the future as to where we're going. He put it on all the people. First Chronicles 29 is a great chapter if you want to read it, where David does a declaration over the offerings of the people. And he said, Lord, none of this belongs to us. It all belongs to you. And it is our joy and our pleasure to present it to you. Read that. He calls them into the provision. He begins to set in order within the house the priestly ministry. God help us. He begins to assign all of the people had a job. All of the people had a role. They all were to do something. They didn't have to do everything, but everybody had to do something. And so the priestly ministry was enacted within the house. He sets in order the prophetic ministry and the spiritual ministry. People miss it. They're like, oh, David set in order the worshipers in the house of God. Read what he said before. Before he set the worshipers in place, he set down the prophetic. Read it. Read it. He put the prophets in place. So we have prophet, priest, and king operating in this genre here. Interesting. And he sets, in, he sets up spiritual ministry, including the prophetic and including worship. It wasn't... See, the, what, what I'm trying to show you here is these things aren't add-ons. Giving is not an add-on. It's not just something we add on. Like it's a good idea. Hey, I think we all should give. <laughs> it's the vision of heaven. There is church culture and there is kingdom culture. We can operate by church culture all day long, but it affects nothing. Okay? You get measure. Or you can operate by kingdom culture and you can have fullness. Our church, your church, operates by kingdom culture. Our line of thinking is heaven to earth, according to the kingdom. That's how we speak. That's how we present it. Giving is kingdom culture. Priestly ministry is kingdom culture. We're servitude, offering from us to you, from us, from you to us, to the people. That's priestly ministry. Spiritual ministry isn't an add-on. We act like this is an add-on. You know, it's just something that certain churches add on to their ministries. It's to be a functioning part of the community. And it's not given to just elite people. Right? Oh, the pastor, oh, he's such a prophet. All may prophesy. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. You know, oh, the pastor, he laid hands on the sick, and oh my gosh, that cancer was gone, or whatever. These signs shall follow those who believe. You understand? It's on you, in you. You may not know what to do with it, and therein lies the purpose of the fivefold prophets, apostles, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to teach you what is rightfully yours and to teach you how to effectively operate in it. That's the fivefold cast. It's not to be worshipped and honored, although they, we are worshipped, we're not worshipped, but, but the fivefold, the ministry cast, is to be honored, but not to the extent of worship. The, the leader is to support the follower and push him higher. That's the model of the church. So prophetic ministry is to teach you how to prophesy. 
Teach you how to lay hands. Teach you how to operate in spiritual things. Teach you how to read your Bible. Teach you how to pray. All of that stuff. But not just that. You know, churches, we highlight that. But what about spiritual ministry? Everyday prophets, everyday people operating and carrying the kingdom that can pray for people, can give a word, a word of encouragement, a word in season. You know, it doesn't have to be, you're going to Poland. I mean, that's a little extreme, you know, okay, I get it. And you're like, well, I don't know if I could do that. Yeah, I, you know, 1%. You see, I try to develop myself, and I'm not a 1%. I don't see myself the way I'm, I'm working on it. But, you know, God help me. But, you, you know, you, you work on, you work towards the higher things. You push towards the higher things, and you let it develop. And you expand it, and you keep taking risks into it. But it's not an add-on. And here's the big thing. He commanded skillfulness. This is amazing. So Jesus, is, he, David sets the whole house in order, and he commands skillfulness. In other words, he doesn't want the worship leaders up here making a joyful noise. You know? Y'all can make the joyful noise. The people in the chairs make the joyful noise. But the people on the stage need to minister with, with excellence. Not perfection, excellence, right? So if we have a prophetic teacher, we have a, we have a class that we're doing, like, and I'm teaching you, I shouldn't be making it up as I'm going along. You know what I mean? Like, well, I think prophecy looks like, I mean, I mean if you're going to lead, do it with excellence and bring the people into excellence. That's what he's asking for. With us, you know, we kind of get up there and, well, Sister Susie's got a song and, She'd like to sing it for the people. And then we put her up there, and the only person edified is the one singing the song. You know? And then people get their feelings hurt when they think, oh, well, I felt like this was my thing. Or, you know, and, and okay, yeah, maybe this is a ministry that you can be involved in. But until you move within the ranks and the protocols that we're looking for, and trust me when I tell you, the protocols that Elevate asks you for are nothing compared to what I see in other churches. I mean, it's like... I feel like I'm in crazy town sometimes when I see the way churches run it. And I'm, I'm no critic. I'm no critic. All I'm saying is I like to go a different way. We want to equip and empower the people. I don't want to raise anemic Christians. That is not my goal. The goal of our church is not to make you anemic to where you just sit there and you're just nothing and you're all this. We want power. Power from the people. When people come in the room, the whole church resonates with power. We all have different roles and different identities and different places that we operate from, but the, but the church, we're not anemic, you know, poor little lambs, you know, with our head down. And I mean, you know, we're, we're people who are confident in the identity and the purposes and the power of God that's in our lives. That's, that's what we're looking for. And a lot of churches angle it in such a way to where only the hierarchical people are the ones that are operating, and everybody else in the whole, the whole church is anemic. Anemic. That's not what he wants. That's not what the Lord wants. And that's not what David was doing here. He put leadership in place. Next slide. Have to learn from the losses. Anybody want to know the power of a comeback? Yeah, I got one. Yeah, and that's all I need. All I need. I'm just joking with you guys. So, all right. So for every, say this with me. For every setback, Jesus has a comeback. That's right. There's nothing lost in Jesus. There is resurrection in one form or another. Serve, we serve the God of resurrection, and we carry the power of resurrection. Romans 1 tells us the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, the, the spirit of resurrection. Where does he dwell? In us. So we carry within us the spirit of resurrection. So we have the God of resurrection, and we come with, and the Holy Spirit is the spirit of resurrection. Life from the dead. Life, life from nothing. You have permission to mourn. You do not have permission to stay there. That's what I was talking about. So we have the power of the comeback. So, okay, what do we do in face of our losses, in the face of inevitable losses? You do something, you screw it up. How do you, how do you handle it, and how do you move towards a, a comeback? Number one, you become an, ob an objective observer. 
How did I get here? You know what I'm saying? Somebody said experience is the best teacher. Evaluated experience is the best teacher. You can experience things, but if you don't evaluate the experience, it's not going to change you. Okay? It's the definition of stupidity, doing the same, Einstein said, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And there are a lot of people that do the same thing over and over again. They expect that you have to evaluate the experience. And what does that look like? Okay, it looks like what went right, what went wrong, what was confusing, what's missing. So you look at the experience and you suffer through the loss. You go through a heartache, you go through a pain. What did I, how did I end up in this place? What went wrong here? What did I do wrong? Where were my choices wrong? You, you evaluate it. You evaluate it in order to move forward. You don't evaluate it to self-condemn. You evaluate it in order to change. We don't teach this very much in the church. We don't teach people not just to think biblically, but to think critically. And when I mean critically, it's like criticizing each other, but looking at something in a different way, right? I think it's George Barna. He's talking about like, if I give data, so he's like, if I do market research and give data to Coca-Cola, they have an immediate strategy in how to implement that. So if I look at their processes and I say, this is what you're doing wrong, and this is what needs to change, he said they almost immediately enact it. He does the same thing for churches for free. And he says, I'll come in and I'll teach the church and I'll show them and they'll just kind of go, oh, that's nice. And then they throw the paper on a shelf in the back. They never enact. They never evaluate. Even when they have experiences being evaluated, they don't do anything with it. The Bible says this, fools think their own way is right, but the wise listen to counsel and learn. So what does that mean? Counsel can come from people. Counsel can also come from experiences. I use the example of a hot stove. I put my hand on a hot stove. That hot stove has just counseled me. <laughs> Don't put your hand on the hot stove. So you can be counseled from not just people, but from experiences themselves. So we come out of the comeback, objectively observe what, what, what's going on here. Learn from it and then take inventory because what the goal is is not, so you're taking inventory in order to go forward. So you're looking at it, you're learning from it, and now you're gonna take inventory in order for you to move forward. You understand that? The inventory isn't to just see what you lost to say, okay, what do I got left to work with? Okay, I've been through something, What's, what do I have in my hand? That's the deal. So where are you at spiritually, emotionally, physically, financially? What do you have? What do you do well? Right? So sometimes when we go through losses, we're in a very, we're in a spiritual funk. We might need encouragement. Sometimes we've been damped emotionally. We may need some, we may need some emotional healing. Sometimes we may, you know, physically, we just might not feel up to the task. We might need to be, we might need to rest. Sometimes financially, we might need to recover a little bit financially before we make another run. But the goal is to make another run. You understand? Next slide. Create a vision of a hopeful future. Anybody want a vision of a hopeful future? That's right. Starts today. Jeremiah 20, line 11. I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. We have a hope for a hopeful future. And it began with David when David realized who he was at the threshing floor. Okay, that's the idea. Who am I? Right? This is who you are, David. And this is what you're to do. You are, you are the son of the highest. Your, your life is to be lived in worship towards me to and from me. That's how this life is to be lived. When David got it, all of a sudden a vision for a future came to him. You get a purpose. Who are you? These are the questions you have to ask. Who are you? Right? Who are you? What are you? Why are you? What are your gifts? What are your talents? What are your abilities? This is what a vision looks like. What are your passions? What drives you? What is a must? What is something in the world that you see that must change? Somebody has to, those are all the drivers for that. But it begins with who you are. I'm a son of the highest. That's who I am. 
What am I? I'm an heir in this world and in the world to come. Why am I? I'm about my father's business. That's what I'm to do. So regardless of anything that I do, I'm to pick something. I'm to operate as a son. I'm to operate as an heir with authority. And I'm to operate in accordance with my father's business. No matter what you do. Doesn't matter what you do. You can be a janitor or a floor, not to pick on janitor, no offense. You can be whatever it is you are. You can be, you know, school teacher, mom, whatever. You're, you're a daughter of the highest as a mother, right? That's who you are. You're an heir in this world and in the one to come, okay? Why are you? You're about your father's business. So as a mother, you're to train that child with the understanding from your world of your identity, of your authority, of your purpose, and you're to bring the father's will into the life of that child. So whatever you do, it's in line with those things as a believer. The unbeliever doesn't have any compass like that. We get the compass, you know? The, um, most unbelievers, they don't even know what, they, don't, they can't even answer those questions. Life is in seasons, and sometimes life defines the season for you. I you know what I'm talking about? My daughter just had a baby, baby's seven weeks old. Life has defined her season, okay? She's, there's nothing she can do. She's taking care of a baby. Every four hours, she's nursing a baby. And I tried to tell her, I'm like, Mariah, your, your life is defined for you right now. It's, it's taking care of this child. So be the best that you can be in that moment. Others of us, we're at different seasons of our lives. You know, the chapter's closed. They're ch closing chapters. You're in transitional points. You're standing on the front end of, a, of an open doorway. There's lots more opportunities in that way. You have to define your, you have to define your purpose and do that in partnership with that. What, what is it that you want to do? What is it that you want to accomplish? No, seriously, what is it that you, what, what really, really matters to you? And someone would go, I want to make money. And the operative question is, why? Why? I want, uh, I want a good marriage, I want to be married, I want a good family. My question is, why? Why? And the reason is, is if the answer to that question rotates back on you, you're out of alignment. I want a good marriage so that people can see and be encouraged through my marriage that they can have hope, that they can see the Lord reflected through my marriage. Okay, now we've got a good motivation. You understand? I want a business, not so that my ego can be exalted, but so that through this business I can fuel the kingdom, through this business I can be able to reach into places that nobody else can go. I'm going to associate and be in contact with people that nobody, you know, you, you got to get the motivation right. You, gotta, you understand, and, and what happens is what you got to be aware of, pruning branches, so we can talk about pruning branches. I, I, I studied, uh, we, uh, there was a day when I had a house with a bunch of trees and I was really into pruning. I mean, I had, I had the, you know what I'm saying? I had, the pru I had this pruner, I had that pruner, I had the electric pruners, I had all the pruners in the world, man, and I had books on pruning. I studied pruning. <laughs> I didn't do it, though. I looked good, but it just did, I didn't execute. And one of the things they do with pruning is they call training a leader. So they cut, they, cut, they cut the leader, cut the lead branch. In order to train the leader, they have to cut the leader. Ouch. Then there's another rule of, of pruning. It's dead, damaged, or diseased. Anything that's dead, damaged, or diseased, you cut it, right? And then, the then there's another part of that that says anything that grows back in on itself is to be cut. And so if you're wondering how God prunes the branches in your life, he is going to cut the things that grow back in on you. That's right. And so you need to be just as brutal in cutting the things that grow back in on you. So when you're looking at your life and the rotation of your life is back towards yourself, well, I want this for this. Your motivation is wrong. 
You're asking, as James would say, you're asking amiss. You're asking for the wrong reason. You're trying to, you know, it's like that's where, again, scripture is clear. Seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added. The rotation shouldn't be towards you. We want to do this in order to accomplish that. Everything else is a benefit. Everything else is a benefit. Does that make sense to anybody? Am I, am I talk, talking to myself here? It's okay. All right, short-term goals, all right? So we're almost done. This is important. Short-term goals. It's okay, a short-term goal. I give this guy a word, right? He hears a vision. He's got a new vision from God, and he immediately sets a goal. I'm going to Poland. And I told him, I, because like, I, I, I shared this word with him. I go, you're not going to know what you're doing. You're not going to know how it's going to work out. And I said, if you're going to try to calculate this, this is, again, when church tries to calculate, well, how's this going to work out? And we want to calculate everything. When you're following the Lord, you're, you're going into the unknown. It's just the way it is. I said, you're going to go to a place where you don't know what you're doing. And I said, you have to go there and just push out and go here and see where this goes and see where that goes. But yet, but the guy set a goal. I said, if you're waiting to map this out and you want the results before you ever do anything, it's not going to happen. So it looks like this. What's your short-term goal? Well, I want to get married. Okay, right? So your short-term goal would be do something about the real estate. You know what I'm saying? Put, you know, get the, get the real estate in order. <laughs> it's true. You know, I, I always love this story. Really good-looking girl. Uh, my friend really liked her and would talk to Sherry about her. And she was, like, very refined, very pretty girl. And he would dress in, like, track suits, right? Like, I'm talking, like, Adidas track suits all the time. He's walking around. He's like, oh, yeah, Sherry, I really like her, you know? And Sherry goes, I'm just going to tell you straight. <laughs> She's like, if you want her, then this has to change. And that's what she would say. You say, oh, that's harsh. That's harsh. Are you kidding me? That would be like the best advice you could ever get. You know what I mean? You know, a lot of times, oh, oh I, want, I want that girl. Well, dude, I mean, look, look what you're wearing. You know what I mean? You, you, you look like, you, look like, like you work in a car wash. Again, no offense to working in a car wash, but if you're going to work in a car wash, dress like that. If you're trying to get that girl, don't dress like that. Don't act like that. All the ladies said, all right. <laughs> and you might want to deal with your personality, right? You might want to deal with some issues. That, that might be a short-term goal that you have. A short-term goal might look like that. A short-term goal might say, I'm going to put myself in a social environment where I perhaps can meet people. A lot of people want to meet people, but they want to sit on the couch, right? They want to wait on the couch thinking that that special someone is going to come and knock on their door. You have to be, a short-term goal might be, I'm going to put myself in a position where I can meet people. I'm going to prepare myself for what I believe God is going to give me in the future. People want to be, I have a call of God on my life. Okay, are you studying? Are you equipping yourself for that? It's not going to happen by Shazam, right? It's just not, all of a sudden, I'm ready to teach the scripture. I'm ready to lead a ministry now. Really? You have, to, you have to determine that that's it. You say, I'm going to launch a business. Okay, great. I'm for you. I'm in. I'm with you. Are you doing market research? Are you doing product development? Are you planning? Are you looking at the situations? Are you strategizing what your first move is? Are you developing the courage in order to take that first move? I know different people. They, sometimes they're just wishful thinking. Others have plans, but they have no courage to enact that plan. None, because they don't know how it's going to work out. Well, guess what? Nobody does. Nobody does. You know, Sherry's asking me in, in about the school. So what are we going to do? I'm like, I don't know. What are we going to do there? Well, I don't know. I mean, I know, but I don't, I don't have every answer solidified. I mean, I have a general direction, and I have a contingency plan, right? But if you want me to tell you exactly how it's going to happen, I don't know. 
And that's why people don't move. It's because they want to know exactly how it's going to happen. And you're not going to know. It's fluid. We move forward and it flows. We move forward and, it, and it's very fluid. Right? So maybe your short-term grant, I'm going, to launch a, I'm going to launch a business. Great. Start planning. Develop a business plan. Develop a strategy. Look at market conditions. Look at different variables. Get everything ready. Assemble it. Get your best case scenario and your worst case scenario. Okay, if I can start, I want $100,000. If I can't start, can I start with zero? What does zero look like? How do I leverage zero? And you have different plans and different, different methods of getting there, but you're going to do it. You're just going to figure out the way. So that might be your short-term goal. And then you, what the big thing here is you have to have perseverance. If you don't have perseverance, you will not accomplish anything. You won't. Your marriage will fail, your children will, everything will go wrong in any area of your life if you don't have perseverance. The Bible says those that retreat or those that draw back, my soul has no pleasure in. Perseverance. We don't lose, we quit. That's the story of the scripture, right? And so what's going to happen is whatever you launch out into, and when you're coming out of it, you're going to make a comeback and you're going to move forward, you're going to have opposition. You should expect it. You're going to have opposition. Opposition doesn't mean the Lord's not with you. Right? Somebody just told me a pearl is created through irritation. I'm like, oh, thanks, man. Appreciate that. You know? So there, there's sometimes friction is what creates the beauty. It creates the power. But if you think it's just all going to be easy, this, again, is what we teach in the culture. We think if I launch something on the Internet, I'm going to be like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg. You know, I'm going to be 25 years old and I'm going to be a billionaire. That is an anomaly. That is like, you know, and, and again, we put pressure on our culture and our culture with a lot of the kids is they think if they're not successful by the age of 30, their life's over. Well, who told you that? You know, oh, I got to have all this money by the time I'm 30. If I don't have this money, I'm my 30. Really? Who, who told you that? Perseverance. Do the work. This is a big one work. I think I'm almost done. Do the work. It's a work ethic. I, I'm a big proponent, I actually have tried to form a language into this, is it's like, we, we have a culture that educates, and I'm not anti-education, I'm all for it. I'm constantly in learning mode. But we have education without work ethic. You understand? We, we know all kinds of crazy things, but nobody wants to do the work. If I had to choose, and I teach this to my son all the time, I'm like, you can be as smart as you want to, but if you don't have a work ethic, you're not going anywhere. So work ethic is do the work. Do what's required. Work into the vision. Work in ministries. Paul told Timothy, do the work of the ministry. Paul said, I work harder than any apostle. But he also said, I don't run like a man that beats the air. I'm not running and just doing crazy things. I'm making decisions in line with this vision, in line with this purpose. I'm making, I'm making things work. Just the thought, courageously move forward. What does that mean? So get some short-term goals and bind them to a time plan. Oh, next year. Or why don't you say, okay, so it's November. By the first of the year, I want to be here. And then back up and start making goals. And you say, well, I didn't hit all my goals by the first of the year. Yeah, but maybe, okay, you put 10 goals, you hit four. Hey, we're moving, aren't we? We're, we're going forward. So now you're going to say, now so, so, so take January and put out March. Well, I still didn't hit all of them by March. Yeah, but now we're up to seven, right? We're up to seven. If you're, you, put, you, you have to time bind the plan. You have to put that, you have to take that and you have to bind it into some kind of time-bound plan. What do you want to do by when? This is what we want and this is when we're going to make it happen and this is what we're going to go towards. If we don't make that window, we're going to push out another window. But we're going to keep pushing that window until we get to where we want to go. That's what you have to do. And you have to put it in time. Anybody ever notice how much you get done before you go on vacation? You ever notice that? 
You got a pile of laundry sitting this high, and two days before vacation, I mean, you were doing that laundry, man. You were like, you know what I'm saying? Oh, man, I got to go to the gym. You haven't been to the gym in six months, but, man, you're getting ready to go on a vacation. You're going to the gym. Why? Because you're, t- you're time-bound. You know, if you time-bind something, it ends up actually contributes to your motivation. And measurable, executable ex- steps. Measure your ability. Measure your steps. Being able to measure what you're doing in, in executable steps. Last slide. Is there any more? That's it? So that's my heart for you. As that you see David's life, who ended up in a train wreck, the guy completely blew his world up, and God gave him a comeback. And like, not only can you have a comeback, you can have a hope in a future. And so nothing's dead to you. Nothing's my challenge to you is to just receive from this and to just take this into your life and see what God would have you to do with it. And if he would challenge you on anything. And not, be, not settle and not think that your life is over. Or think that the season is past, or you know what disqualifies me? I'm too old. Who told you that? You know, oh, you know, I made this mistake. Well, again, who told you that? You can move past your mistakes. You can move into a future. Amen. All right, let me pray for you. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine down upon you. And may the Lord be gracious to you in every way. And may the Lord give you peace. And may you forever live within His favor. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week.